0: Episode 139 of Real Life Ghost Stories. To kick things off this week, I would like to thank our newest Patreon subscribers. I would like to thank Melissa Taylor, Love, Kim Abood, Shan Taylor Noble, Amber Hans Bushong, Jackie, Alyssa Brunner, Haley Gorenflow, Marissa, Anna, Lauren Fredericks, Michelle Henry, Emma Batman. Dave Egginton, Nora Aljanady, Laurie H., Jean, Jennifer MacDonald, Jules Quigley, and Mama Peculiar. Thank you so much for subscribing to the Patreon. I appreciate it so much and I am thankful for you every single day. And the Patreon is back tomorrow. That is the 6th of September and I am back tomorrow with a very special episode which features my friend Tim who is an incredible historian and who also loves a ghost story and I'm very excited to be back on Patreon. I also apologise if I pronounced anybody's names incorrectly, there were some particularly tricky ones in that batch, so if I got them wrong, I'm sorry, I did try my best. And before we start today's episode, I just wanted to address something which has come up quite a lot, I think, since I started back making podcasts and making episodes. Uh, I've had loads of comments from people and messages from people Regarding uh, whether or not I will be doing like commentary after listener stories or after the episodes or talking about them or kind of being a bit more interactive in that way. And the truth is that no, I'm probably not. There's a couple of reasons for this, and I'm not gonna really, I'm not really interested in airing my grief or how I'm feeling publicly. It's just not, it's just not the way I do things. And I also don't want the podcast to become sort of like my misery diary because that's not what I want to do either. But I know that people want to hear my thoughts on things and want to hear that little bit of interaction at the end of stories. And actually, I'm just not able to do it at the moment. It's just it's it's not something that I feel that I feel comfortable doing. It's not it's something that I actually find quite distressing. I understand that people saying that comes from a place of love and it it doesn't come from a place of like criticism or you know unkindness but I just wanted to be really clear and kind of address it publicly rather than responding to everybody's comments individually but it's probably not going to happen maybe in maybe in the future maybe at some point it is something that I talk about in tomorrow's patreon episode but I thought it was best to also address it here so that people were aware of my stance on it and also aware that I'm not just ignoring your comments and your feedback and I do really. Like, I'm so grateful and thankful for all of the support that I've gotten from everybody in the last 12 weeks, really. Uh, But I just need to kind of point out that it has only been 12 weeks. There's a whole other world that Dan and I lived in outside of the podcast. And uh, just telling stories is about all that I can manage at the moment. And uh, maybe at some point, maybe at some point I will figure out a, a way to make it more dynamic for for me and for people listening, but right now that's probably not going to happen. A lot of the stories that get sent in to the podcast are about death and loss, which is the nature of the show. We, we talk about ghost stories and a lot of that is around death and loss. And Dan and I did this podcast for almost three years together and suddenly talking about death and loss in both a metaphorical and physical empty space is not a good place for me to be in at the moment when i'm just telling stories i sort of go into like a storytelling zone and i think about how i say the words more often than what i'm actually saying and that's far easier to do than then trying to discuss the story and not getting any response back so that that's i'm just being honest that's that's where i'm at and uh, it is really flattering that people want to hear what i have to say it's incredibly flattering and it's probably good to point out as well that I'm just actually not very good at it. I can tell a good story, but I'm not very good at having a concise breakdown of that story afterwards. I tend to ramble, like I'm doing right now. I tend to ramble. Kev, for example, from We Need to Talk About Ghosts and The Dark Paranormal, has an incredible ability to talk about stories on his own in an engaging way. And I maybe I need to like get lessons from him or something because I just I'm just not very good at it it's just not something that i'm very good at. so that's that's where i stand. i'm not ignoring anybody. i totally appreciate the feedback. i am bowled over with all of the love and care and all of the niceness that i've received in the last 12 weeks and i just wanted to let everybody know what my stance is so that everybody's on the same page basically. and to be extra super duper clear, i love doing this. this is it, it has been a dream for me to do this as a job like I still can't believe that this is what I do I still can't believe that I had the opportunity to do it and I still can't believe that I have the support from you guys to be able to do it and I love making content whatever that content is whether it's Instagram whether it's making TikTok videos whether it's you know writing stories and researching stories and all that stuff I absolutely love it but at the moment I need to Continue to make them in a way that doesn't make me resentful of it because I want to keep loving it and I want to be able to continue doing it for the long term. Before we begin today's story I just wanted to say a massive thank you to Tracy and Paula who sent me a book called Haunted England by Westwood and Simpson which is the Penguin Book of Ghosts and it's great little snippets of all these different haunted locations all around England and it was the basis of this week's story and I I was flicking through it and I thought oh that's a good one and then I went from there so thank you to Tracy and Paula for sending me that book and also sending me that lovely little tent it's very cute. Which was for Bimmy, by the way, not not for me, just so we're clear. (laughs) So let's get on with the story. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. Get your personalised plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Edward and Richard were scared. The fire was lit and emitted a warm glow, but the glow did not reach the corners of the chamber where dark shadows danced and pulsated. Edward, being twelve and the older of the two, tried to calm Richard down with stories of great heroes and warriors of old like their grandmother used to. Richard was only nine, and his face seemed to be permanently etched with fear. Edward watched his little brother sleep a fitful sleep, and wondered what was to happen now. They had been here for too long, and nothing seemed to be right. Besides, they would never wanted to come here in the first place. They had been through so much for two such young boys. Their dad had gotten sick and died, and his family didn't like their mother. Even they knew that, despite their mother trying to protect them from it. She protected them from as much as she could, but even she couldn't have foreseen what would happen. Edward brought his knees up to his chest as he sat shivering in front of the fireplace. He was reminded of days gone by when he would play in front of a roaring fire with Richard and their grandmother would tell them stories. Stories of ghosts and monsters and stories of strong men who fought great enemies and changed the world. But there was one story that Edward could not forget. It was always there at the forefront of his mind while he tried to keep Richard entertained. Their uncle had died here. In this place. One night, while playing in front of the fire, their grandmother had told them the story. Her voice had changed when she told it. She wasn't adopting the pseudo-seriousness she usually did when she was telling ghost stories. She was angry and bitter, and she stared into middle distance while she relayed the horrific events. It was as though she had forgotten that her audience were two small children. Their uncle George was a big, strong man, but lacked the cunning of his brothers and was easily swept up by ideals and flights of fancy. When the accusations came, it was unclear where they had come from, but they were fierce and compelling. George was accused of treason. He was imprisoned in this very place, and in the dead of night he was executed and drowned in a vat of wine. Fear prickled Edward's skin as he imagined his uncle sitting in a room like this, Completely unaware that his end was coming, and that it would be brutal and drawn out. In the quiet of night, in these moments, Edward was terrified that he would look up and see the spectre of his uncle, mouth open in a silent, anguished wail, red wine pooling around his feet like blood. He decided it was time to sleep, and climbed into the bed beside his sleeping brother and shut his eyes. In their sleep, they were blissfully unaware of Tyrrell climbing the staircase or pausing outside their door. They did not see him take several steadying breaths as tears pricked his eyes. They first knew of him when Richard opened his eyes and screamed a terrified scream at this strange man standing beside their bedside. Edward woke with a start, and instinctively pulled Richard from the bed and dragged him to a corner of the room. He stood in front of him, in a vain attempt to protect him as Tyrrell made his advance. You've probably heard of the princes in the Tower, the ill-fated children of Edward IV. They were caught in the crossfire of a bitter family feud and murdered. No one really knows the truth of what happened to them that night. The infamous Richard III confined them to the Tower of London, for their own protection, allegedly, and they were never seen again. It's a story that is still hotly contested to this day, hundreds of years later, and there are many theories as to what unfolded during that summer. But the general consensus is that Edward and Richard, two young boys whose only fault was their lineage, were brutally murdered. And among another group of people, there is a consensus that, that their souls never quite left the Tower of London. The Yeoman's Warders of the Tower is the collective name given to the guards who are stationed at the Tower of London. They are traditionally military men and women who have served two decades in the military, have a perfect record and have risen to high-ranking officials. In the early 2000s, a Yeoman's Warder was asleep in the residential quarters when he was shaken awake by his wife. He opened his eyes to see her sitting up, wide-eyed and pale, staring into a corner of the room. Her bedside lamp was still on where she had just finished reading her book. She hadn't even turned it off to settle down to sleep when it happened. She heard a little noise, like a little stifled sob. She put her book down and looked up and was immediately confronted with a sight that made her blood run cold and her hair stand on end. She fumbled over the bedclothes trying to find her husband's sleeping body and shook him awake. He opened his eyes and asked her what was wrong. She didn't answer, but continued to stare ashen-faced into the corner of the room. He sat up and looked to where her eyes were staring. And there, huddled in the corner of the room, were two little boys. They were wearing long, white nightdresses and looked completely petrified. The yeoman cleared his throat to ask him who they were, and in an instant they vanished, leaving no trace. In 2013, a yeoman warder had been doing his official rounds of the tower, and decided to take his young son along for company. As he walked from room to room, he told his son of the history, how the building had been a treasury, a prison, an armoury, how it was bombed during the Blitz and restored. His son happily listened and asked questions, and it wasn't until he heard a giggling and a shrieking that he realised his son was no longer by his side. He turned to go back and fetch him from the previous room, sure that he had become distracted by something. As the omen walked, he was sure he could hear more than one voice. His son was giggling and laughing, but he could hear other children too. Strange, he hadn't seen any other children around, but he assumed that a private tour or another yeoman was doing the rounds. He entered the room to see his son running, eyes bright and face flushed with joy. There was only one voice now. "'What are you doing?' the yeoman asked, slightly confused at the lack of other children in the room. "'I'm playing, Daddy, with those two boys,' the child replied." He looked from a corner of the room to his dad's face and back again, recognising the confusion. I was just playing with those two boys, Daddy. What's wrong? Can't you see them? The construction of the Tower of London, which is actually a castle, began in 1066 and it began being used as a prison in 1100. The last state prisoner was Rudolf Hess, Hitler's right-hand man, and later in 1952, the gangsters, the Cray twins, were held there as overnight prisoners. But that was only because the regiment happened to be there, rather than a pointed act of imprisonment. Despite the popular held belief that the tower was a blood-soaked prison of doom, that's not actually true. The prison lodgings were surprisingly comfortable, as they often housed wealthy prisoners. Despite its enduring reputation as a place of torture and death, popularised by 16th century religious propagandists and 19th century writers, only seven people were executed within the tower before the world wars of the 20th century. Executions were more commonly held on the notorious Tower Hill to the north of the castle, with 112 occurring there over a 400-year period. In the latter half of the 19th century, ...institutions such as the Royal Mint moved out of the castle to other locations, leaving many buildings empty. Anthony Salvin and John Taylor took the opportunity to restore the tower to what was felt to be its medieval appearance... ...clearing out many of the vacant post-medieval structures. In the First and Second World Wars, the tower was again used as a prison... ...and witnessed the execution of 12 men for espionage. There were, of course, people tortured at the tower... not as many as you might expect. However, there were many cases of death and murder that were high profile, like the death of the princes in the tower, who, as the previous stories suggest, are still seen to this day. Tower Hill was the scene of many gory executions that were public spectacle. People came from miles around to watch the accused being hanged, beheaded or burned alive. Those convicted of treason often had their heads impaled on a spike outside the tower as a warning. The accused would be marched with a parade from the tower to Tower Hill and post-execution their body would be marched back. During World War II, a soldier who was stationed at the base of Tower Hill was privy to one of these death marches. It was the middle of the night and the soldier saw a glow from the top of Tower Hill. As nighttime raids were common over London at this point in the war, he was immediately alert. The glowing light throbbed and pulsated in the darkness, and he knew that it was not a plane in the distance. Rather, it was something coming down the hill. As the light seemed to grow and expand, figures began to emerge and take shape. There were men, tens of them, walking solemnly down the hill, They were dressed in period clothes and were carrying something aloft. It was a corpse. The corpse of another man and it was headless. This apparition was so detailed that the soldier could see the head of the corpse tucked neatly under the crook of one of its arms. And then the light began to fade. And the macabre parade disappeared altogether. Historical documents demonstrate that this scene was pretty commonplace post-execution. Since her execution in 1536, there have been reports of the ghostly apparition of Anne Boleyn, walking towards the place of her death or leaning out of the window that was once her bedroom. Some have reported seeing her headless body drifting through the hallways and holding her own head in her arms. Margaret Pole, the Countess of Salisbury, refused to denounce Catholicism under King Henry VIII, and at seventy-six years old, she was sentenced to death. Prior to her death, she carved the following on her cell wall. For traitors on the block should die. I am no traitor, no, not I. My faithfulness stands fast, and so, towards the block I shall not go. Nor make one step, as you shall see. Christ in thy mercy, save thou me." Margaret fought and struggled against her executioners until she was eventually held down with great force. Her executioner was young and inexperienced. And opting for the axe, he managed to hack at her shoulders before she was eventually beheaded. Modern accounts tell of her jumping up and running around and the executioner chasing her swinging the axe. This isn't true and is only designed to add extra gore to an already horrific tale. But each year, on the anniversary of her death, her screams and the sickening thud of the misplaced axe are said to resonate around the walls of the Tower. The spectre of Lady Jane Grey, who was also beheaded on Tower Hill, has been spotted on the grounds, and the chapel of St. Peter Ad Vencula has been the site of another medieval ghostly parade seen by yeomen on sentry duty. There are numerous famous tales and yarns from the Tower of London, mostly about the famous historical figures who've been executed there. It's entirely possible that the stories of the apparitions of the princes, Anne Boleyn, Mary Pole, and many others are conjured by our own imaginings. They are stories that have gone down in history as a nod to the bloody and violent lineage of the monarchy. Kids learn about these stories in schools in the UK. Is it possible that the stories are so shocking and sometimes seem so beyond the facets of the human condition that when we are faced with the place where these incidences took place, we conjure the images of what we have heard and learned about since childhood. The Tower of London was this incredible representation of power and the monarchy, and yet it was the site of many dark and violent events that were orchestrated by that same monarchy. It's a pretty tough juxtaposition, But it ensures that stories are not forgotten or lost, and the legacies of those who suffered remain alive, albeit sometimes exaggerated for effect. When I was searching for stories of real-life experiences in the Tower of London, I came across many vague references to screams and specters. But there was also a story that was totally unexpected, but on closer inspection, it actually makes sense. It was 1816, and a watchman was on duty in the jewel room, guarding the crown jewels. The night was quiet and still, and had for all intents and purposes been a normal night. The guard yawned and stretched his shoulders. He was lucky to be stationed here and he knew it. The reality was that the tower was pretty impenetrable, and he was the last line of defence to protect the jewels. He had spoken to the Keeper of the Crown Jewels, Edmund Lenthal Swift, not an hour before, and was settled in for an easy night duty. He stood stiffly and felt a cold breeze sweep around his body. He shivered involuntarily. The tower was cold and drafty at the best of times, but tonight it felt particularly chilly. His breath puffed up in front of his face like billowing clouds of smoke. Odd, he thought. It's never usually this cold. The various fireplaces dotted around the rooms often offered no real heat, but did succeed in keeping the chill out of the air. He heard a slight rustling in the hallway. Someone's walking past, he thought. If it was Swift, he'd pop in to make sure everything was okay. The door didn't open. Swift didn't enter and the rustling sound continued. Must be rats, he idly reasoned. The rustling turned to a scratching as something scrabbled against the outside of the door. Must be a big rat, he reasoned. Less idly. He watched the door and could see a faint movement as whatever was on the other side continued to scratch at it. And then the scratching stopped and the only sound that he could hear was his own breath that steamed up in front of him in the bitter cold air. And then piercing the silence came an animalistic snort, like the grunt of a boar or a bull. He physically recoiled in shock, and the scratching returned, louder and frenetic like something huge was trying to get in, snorting and snarling through the wood which suddenly seemed like a very flimsy defence and then silence again. His chest heaved as he watched the door in panic, the sound of the snorting and the scratching now just a ghostly echo hanging heavy in the air. He watched in terror as something eked under the doorway. At first he thought it was some sort of liquid, oozing through a crack between the door and the floor, but then he realised it was smoke. Was there a fire? He sniffed the air frantically, but there was no acrid smell of burning. There was no smell in the air at all. But more and more vapour was pouring in under the door. His breathing was shallow and panicked now. The vapour swirled and swelled, pale against the dark wood of the door, and suddenly within the vapour, he began to see a shape. It was huge. And unmistakable. The vapour almost seemed to solidify and the ethereal wisps and tendrils absorbed into one solid mass. It was a bear, and its eyes were focused right on him. It raised up onto its hind legs and the guard shouted out and lunged at it across the room, sword drawn, ready to strike it down. He swung at the creature, just as it opened its mouth and let a roar. His sword passed through it and lodged in the door behind him and that was the last thing he remembered. Edmund Lenthal Swift, keeper of the crown jewels, found his watchman curled up on the floor, pale and whimpering. He called for a doctor and while he waited attempted to get some sense out of him. He repeated the same story over and over again. It was a bear. A bear had attacked him. The doctor arrived and the watchman continued to mumble about a bear, eyes wild and staring. The man was taken away by the doctor and Swift mused over what he had seen. The watchman was absolutely fine and in his full faculties not an hour before and now he was rambling about being attacked by a bear. He couldn't understand it and his confusion turned to horror when he visited the watchman the next day and the man had transformed beyond all recognition. The doctor remarked that there was no discernible reason as to why he was in the condition he was in, and Riley said that it was almost like he had been scared to death. He did die. And in the aftermath, a Mr George Offer came to see Swift, clearly disturbed by something. I know that everyone thinks that he was seeing things before he died, he said, with tears in his eyes. But I heard noises from where I was. I heard scratching on a door like something big with claws was trying to get in. I heard snorting like a bull. I remember being scared, but I didn't say anything because I thought I was just tired and hearing things. So why would there be a bear, phantom or otherwise, in the Tower of London, Elliot O'Donnell, in his book Animal Ghosts, Animal Hauntings and the Hereafter, theorised that the sighting was, and I quote, "...the phantasm of some prehistoric creature whose bones lie interred beneath the tower, for we know that the Valley of Thames was infested with giant reptiles and quadrupeds of all kinds." He also speculated as to whether the bear was some form of elemental that had hunted down the watchman with the sole intention of doing him harm. Both theories are pretty wild... But when I read this story, I suddenly remembered something I had seen the last time I visited the Tower of London. For 600 years, the Tower held the Royal Menagerie, where an assortment of exotic creatures were confined and eventually opened to public viewing. The creatures were primarily gifts from powerful people all over the world and were horrifically ill treated. There was an elephant who was only fed red wine an ostrich that was fed iron nails as some sort of bizarre, weird circus trick. There were flying squirrels and lions and tigers, and even a polar bear that had been gifted from the King of Norway. And along with the polar bear was a vicious black bear called Old Martin, who rebelled against his captives from the day he arrived in the tower to the day he died. Did Old Martin come back to seek his revenge? after being held cruelly captive for years. Who knows? But there have been odd little incidents where people claim to have heard the roar of a lion or the trumpet of an elephant inside the walls of the Tower to this very day. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. can highly recommend that if you're ever in London to visit the Tower of London. It is a really fascinating place. And it's really interesting to have a walk around. And you can get tours from the current yeoman. I didn't mention the Ravens of the Tower, but just very briefly, there is a legend in the Tower of London that there always has to be six Ravens in the Tower. And if there are less than six Ravens in the Tower, then Britain's going to fall or the monarchy's going to fall. And that legend was started, I think it was with Charles II, I believe. And he was really superstitious and some um, wise person or witch or whatever or a fortune teller told him that if there were any less than six ravens in the tower that England would fall. So he uh, decided to clip the wings of the ravens who lived there and they were to be kept. And then this tradition of keeping ravens in the tower was started and there are six ravens there to this day. One of them, they did have seven and one of them passed away in June of this year. But yeah so there's another legend it's pretty much just you know a, a king superstition which a lot of these which is how a lot of these things started but definitely if you're in england and you're in london visit the tower of london it is a great little visit uh thank you so much for listening if you want to send your own spooky story please send it to real life ghost stories podcast at gmail.com if you want to check out more about us you can do so by logging on to our website which is real life ghost stories podcast.com and on that note we shall see you next week